out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Hello and welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so we've really reached uh, a kind of a milestone here uh, in this episode. We have finished talking about all of, or we will when I'm done with this, finish talking about all of the stories that Lovecraft uh, published and wrote during his lifetime, um, except for the revisions, which, as we know, are a mix of stories that he ghost wrote, revised, edited, made comments on. It's not, you know, the textual evidence is not 100% on all these stories, but, um, you know, I, so it's the last, and, it, and I think in that sense, it's a milestone. It's, if, you, if you just read, like, if you get a, the complete stories of H.P. Lovecraft kind of anthology, this is the last story, Plunger in the Dark. It was written in November of 1935. It appeared uh, in December 36 in Weird Tales, so it appeared in his lifetime. Lovecraft died in March 1937. Um, there, there are some other stories, though, just to be... Exact here, like the Diary of Alonzo Typer was was written was a revision. Uh, he wrote it with uh, William Lumley, uh, one of his correspondents who uh, he did this revision with. Uh, I'll look at that story later. That was written around the same time as Haunter in the Dark. That was published much later, though. Um, and then we got the Walls of Irnix, uh, which was originally a story constructed by a fifteen-year-old kid. Um, Kenneth Sterling, who lived in, in, in Providence and became acquainted with Lovecraft and, and got his help, and, and Lovecraft helped rework that story. And that was done in, in 1936. Yeah, it was written in 36. So that one actually comes later. We'll have to talk about how much of that story is, is Lovecraft's as we, you know, as we go on with this series and look at the revisions after we're done here. But I still think it's fair to say that this is a, a an important work, uh, just as being the last, right? For 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 all intents and purposes, it's the last Lovecraft story. So, um, oh, it's a it's a nice one too. It's a really nice one. It's not very long. Uh, the audiobook is like an hour long. Uh, it's only about twenty some pages, so it, it's back to short fiction in a way uh, which he hadn't been. It's actually the shortest story he's written in a while um you know i think you have to go back all the way to stories like um you know maybe some of the dreamland tales or something to find a story quite this short uh, at least it's it's been a while in this podcast since we looked at the story quite this short but it's really effective it's really uh, striking i actually think it's one of his better late stories um and it's thematically interesting for me in, in ways i hope to make clear to you um so it's dedicated to Robert Block. Robert Block, uh, you know, was a, a friend of Lovecraft's from Wisconsin, um, and he was part of that Lovecraft circle. Block was was only like twenty years old at this time. He was born in eighteen seventeen, um, and he becomes a very important writer later on. Of course, writing the novel Psycho. Right. So this was this comes out of. Uh, 
this correspondence between Bloch and, and H.P. Lovecraft in ways um, we actually talked about a little bit when, when we looked at the letters, I think. Um, now, the character's name here is, is Robert Blake. So it's a very close... Um, you know, it's it's essentially the same. So it's a it's a it's a bit of a love letter to, I guess, Robert Block, in that way, not just dedicated to him, but he actually almost appears as a character, even having a similar hometown, uh, Robert Blake being from Milwaukee. So, anyways, uh, so that's kind of the background of the story, a little bit. Um, how to start. Should have had a plan here. Um, it actually begins with the, the poem Nemesis, uh, which he wrote way back in 1917. I'll read it. A, a stanza from that poem anyways. I have seen the dark universe yawning, where the dark planets roll without aim, where they roll in their horror unheeded, without knowledge or luster or name. So it's, it's a very early example in, in, po in Lovecraft's poetry of cosmic horror. Right? It sums up so much of the cosmic horror approach, I think. So anyways, the background of the story is we're told in the first lines here after this uh, epigraph, which is a poem, um, is this Robert Blake was killed in a lightning. That's the official story, right? The lightning killed Robert Blake. And he had this kind of look of horror on his face. And the, the authorities just say, well, it must have been, his horrific look must have been by just, you know, the electric shot. Quote, the expression on his face may easily have arisen from some obscure muscular source unrelated to anything he saw. While the entries in his diary are clearly the result of a fantastic imagination aroused by certain local superstitions and by certain old matters he had uncovered, end quote. So that's, that's what we have. We got, he dies in his room, apparently of a lightning bolt, right? During a, a really weird night that has many witnesses to a storm of some sort. Uh, but what kind of throws a wrench in this interpretation is his facial expressions and the fact that he had these, like, he wrote this weird manifesto just as he was dying. Um, it's like Dagon, if you remember Dagon, one of his early stories where the guy's like talking, thinking about suicide, the, you know, he writes up to the moment of his death, right? Um, it happens here too, but it's much more effective here because you have someone trying to, uh, um, it's not like, oh, the tentacles coming up the window like you have in Dagon. Here it's like he's trying, he knows he's going to die because something's out to get him and he's trying to write down what he seems to understand as quickly as possible. Um, of course, I'm open-minded about Dagon's ending being a suicide. It actually makes more sense if it's a, if it's a, a suicide. So anyways, we, um, our narrator here, and it's a third-person narration, you know, then says, well, let's set aside this official explanation and dig into this. Who is this Robert Blake? What is he into? And we have, like, his diary as a record. So our narrator, uh, although third-person, although... Not fully omniscient, I think, because he, he's getting stuff through his diary. It's almost like a journalist who was interested in this Blake case, you know, and says, I don't really think the official account is right. And the reason why is I got this, I read his diary, right? Um, now, Blake is interested in weird stuff. He's a typical Lovecraft character in this way. Um, and I think, again, this is... This is not Lovecraft necessarily projecting himself into the character, although he tends to do that. I think he's projecting Robert Block into this. Um, quote, for after all, the victim was a writer 
and painter, wholly devoted to the fields of myth, dream, terror, and superstition, and avid in his quest for scenes and effects of, of a bizarre spectral sort. His earlier stay in the city, a visit to a strange old man as deeply given to occult and folklore as he had ended amidst death and flame, and it must have been some morbid instinct which drew him back from his home in Milwaukee. He must have known of the old stories despite a statement uh, to the contrary in his diary, and his death may have nipped in the bud some stupendous hoax destined to have a literary reflection, end quote. Um, we're also told he's interested in, like, uh, in, um, he's written some stories. He's interested in painting. There's a little bit of Clark Ashton Smith in him, too. I don't know if Block was a painter uh, or an artist at all. So there's a, he throws in a little bit of Clark Ashton Smith, who is, of course, his good friend, his correspondent, who not only wrote stories, but also painted and sculpted. Um, anyway, so we have this diary, um, which ex really follows Blake's life in Providence. Right? So this is set in Providence. It's not an Arkham story. So he goes to Providence in 1934 to 35, uh, takes an apartment um, in a pretty normal neighborhood. Uh, it's off College Street uh, near Brown University, a um, place with lots of friendly cats, a small Georgian house with a monitor roof, classic doorway with fan carving, small pan windows. You know, it's, it's a study. Um, it's just a normal home. It's not like the witch house. It's not like the house in the unnameable. It's not a weird place. It's just the place he's staying at for his study. Um, but he's curious and he wants to explore the town. And this, I, to this degree, he's maybe Lovecraft's putting a bit of himself into this character of Robert Blake, especially in his interest in architecture. Uh, this, like the case of Charles Dexter Ward, is very much an architecture story. And it's not as significant as set in Providence as well. It's a set in the town that Lovecraft knows well. So you can, the places that are mentioned in the story are real places, mostly, in, you know, they're pretty much all intact. So you can go and actually do your Lovecraft tour and see these actual um, buildings, like um, the Industrial Trust Building um, is still there. And, and thankfully, the Klinger Anthology has actually pictures of these buildings, so we can uh, don't have to go there unless we really want to. Um, but he gets fascinated by the architecture of the time. So that's a little bit of Lovecraft being projected into it. Um, but uh, he, during his winter in Providence, he wrote stories. He wrote, uh, the stories are really typical of the stories we get out of this kind of Lovecraft circle as it matured in the 30s. Things like the burrow beneath, the burrower beneath, the stairs in the crypt, Shagai, the veil of Paneth, and the feaster from the stars. Um, and we're also told he's doing these other paintings and artistic works alongside it now all this is really fascinating and robert blake is a really interesting character i think even though we barely kind of get to know him that well before horrible things happen to him but he's curious and creative and that's uh, usually a good mix except if you're in lovecraft's universe which it might and leads to your death um, now we get a little bit about immigration and i've mentioned this so many times uh so if you're just joining me it's new to you but for many of you, it might not be. Uh, you know, when Lovecraft returned to Providence after New York, he was like, oh, finally, you know, back home. I'm Providence, you know, and all this. But he started doing more walking tours of Providence, and he found neighborhoods, he found immigrant communities in Providence, things that, you know, made him a little bit uncomfortable. You can tell from some of his letters that he's like, oh, I didn't know that was there before. And it's not like saying we should burn down that neighborhood or anything, but he, he does kind of get this, you get the sense he knows Providence is changing. 
Or, more likely, he never really knew Providence in his, in his youth as much as he thought. I mean, he even says, I never went to these neighborhoods before. Um, and what do you know? They're kind of run down and they're full of immigrants and they're kind of poor and, and you know, a bit, bit weird maybe. But I think Lovecraft basically comes to terms with that and he fully integrates that this aspect of Providence into his story where you have these different quarters. And Blake is associated with these immigrant communities. Um, so we get lines like this. From his few local acquaintances, he learned that the far-off slope was a vast Italian quarter, though most of the house were remnants of older Yankee and Irish days. Now and then he would train his field glasses on that spectral, unreachable world beyond the curling smoke, picking out individual roofs and chimneys and steeples and speculating upon the bizarre and curious mysteries they might house. So that's kind of nice. Now, one place that really fascinates him, we see it from afar, and you must be able to go to College Street or to these areas and look and see this building. I, I you know, and it's literally St. John, St. John's Church um, in Providence, which is the inspiration for this. I think it's got a different name here, or it's not named at all. Yeah, I think it's not named, but it's the same building, right? It's a Gothic revival building from the early, early 19th century. So around this time, he, he's beginning to write another story. And this time it's a novel about uh, a great topic, the survival of a witch cult in Maine, um, which of course is, this is, uh, a, there's a book that Lovecraft mentions all the time in his letters, uh, you know, called The Witch Cults of Europe by this woman named Murray, written in the late 20s, early 30s. I think it's maybe the early 30s. You know, he encourages Howard to read it at one point. But anyways, the argument of this is that witch cults were real religious traditions that have survived and they live on. They're kind of like the survivals of these Druidic earth god traditions and things. Um, and Lovecraft's fascinated by this because it fits into so much of his literature, this idea of a living, malevolent tradition, right, embraced by the working class people, right? Now, not most historians don't see this as accurate, but I'm kind of fascinated with the idea of heterodoxy and religious diversity at the local level, and I kind of dig that aspect of it. It's one thing that, that leads me to, to Lovecraft. Um, so that's, that's a part of this. It's just a mention here, but it's it's maybe a way that this story's close relationship with these foreign communities connects to this, um, connects to Blake's interest. But anyways, he's doing these walking tours and he wants to get at this church. He wants to get a closer look at this church. And he asks around for the immigrants. To, he asks around among the immigrant communities about, you know, what's the way to this church? And it's, it's kind of awkward how he, he seems to have trouble finding it. And I find that hard to believe. I've never been to Providence, but it can't be that hard to find a building. Um, but he eventually finds his way. Um, but it's, it's weird how he can't find it, I guess. I'll, I'll read a bit of this. Plodding through the endless downtown streets and the bleak, decayed squares beyond, he fi came finally upon the ascending avenue of century-worn steps, sagging Doric porches, and blear-paned cupolas, which he felt must lead up to the long, unknown, unreachable world beyond the mists. There were dingy blue and white street signs which meant nothing to him and presently he noted the strange dark faces of the drifting crowds and the foreign signs over curious shops in brown decade weathered buildings. Nowhere could he find any of the objects he had seen from afar so that 
Once more, he half fancied that the federal hill of the distant view was a dream world never to be trod upon by living feet. Um, again, if you see this in the facade, if you see this or you see this spire from afar on a clear day, I don't see why you'd lose track of it in the city. But anyway, he locates a church eventually. And this church is in a, is a decrepit old church in abandoned in a state of decay. Right. And. You know, it's actually modeled off this real um, church in in Providence, right? Now, the real church, St. John's Roman Catholic Church in, in Providence, is much younger than this one's implied to be. It's like 50 years. This one's 50 years older. And I'm pretty sure that St. John's Church is used. This is abandoned and, and not used. Um, and anyway, a little bit more about like some history here. The immigrants seem to know some of the history of this church, and they kind of lead, let let Blake in on some of this, uh, some of this history. And one of the more interesting is that it was the site of an outlawed sect of Catholics. This is why it gets abandoned, I guess. Um, quote: There had been a bad sect there in the olden days, an outlaw sect that called upon awful things for some unknown gulf of night. It had taken a good priest to exercise what had come through there. Um, did to be those who said that merely the light could do it. If Father O'Malley were alive, there would be many the things he could tell. End quote. But this Father O'Malley is not around anymore, so he can't tell the story. But it's interesting he kind of points to Catholic immigrants as being the source of a kind of some kind of divert some kind of weird cult, right? Maybe it's a witch cult or something. It's not necessarily a sect of Catholicism, but it seems drawn it seems to come out of this tradition like a branch or something but anyways he's talking to a policeman about some of this stuff and the policeman says well you know who knows whether it's truth or, or lies or it's just local superstitions but anyways he gets a lot of superstitions before he ever enters into the church so we're about 10 pages into this story and it's really all all that's happened is this writer comes to providence he sees a church he seeks it out and he he finds out this weird history of the of the of the church and it it draws him it's also very uh it's not only creepy in its desertion in this fairly populous and active city but it's um you know it's, it's drawing him in, in a more subconscious way and finally he enters it he enters the building now there's all these cobwebs and soot and dirt and grime throughout the inside of this church um Quote, the paintings on those windows were so obscured by suit that Blake could scarcely decipher what they had represented, but from the little he could make out, he did not like them. The designs were largely conventional, and his knowledge of obscure symbols told him much concerning some of the ancient patterns. End quote. Um, like symbol, he even sees symbols in the cobwebs, which is really kind of creepy, you know, that seem to connect to um, symbolism of ancient Egypt. So even like the cobwebs seem to be calling out some kind of symbols. Um, now, we know, as soon as we find he kind of gets to the library or the study in this church, he knows this is a bad place to be um, because he finds books that forbidden things which most sane had never even heard of. Um, you know what these books are. We've met them a lot. and it, They come up in pretty much every story he's written since like the Dunwich War. Um, Necronomicon, Liber Ivanovis, the Colts de Gules, Un Osher Sprickling Colton, which is a made up book. 
Well, Necronomicon is too, for that matter. Uh, De Vermis Mysterious. All these other occult books are there. The Panoptic Manuscripts. All, he pulls up all these books from his... The mythology and the mythology of some of the writers in his circle. Um, and this pretty much proves that this was the center of some kind of weird witch cult. Uh, quote, Clearly the lingering local rumors had not lied. This place had once been the seat of an evil older than mankind and wider than the known universe. Um, now, while he's doing this, he finds a, a, a small leather-bound book. And this book is cryptographically uh, unaccessible to him, right? It's, it's basically, it's, it's encoded. Um, but he takes it. He steals the book and continues his explorations. And he finds a, he eventually finds a body, a skeleton, a skeleton, a human skeleton that had been there for a long time, right? Since ever since this church has been abandoned, like back in the late 19th century. Um, we actually have a pretty good date for when this is um, because this intruder into this building who died in this building, um, I don't think he heard any rumors about anyone like being lost in there, but um, maybe there was something that came up. Um, but there's cards. He has cards named Edwin M. Lillybridge. He's got newspapers. There's a advertising calendar for 1893, uh, a copy of the Providence Telegram, and, and it's a reporter's badge. So he was a reporter. He was a journalist, right? So this is a... Another, this is a good uh, story if you were interested maybe in Lovecraft's view of the media because I think that's a kind of an underexplored aspect of, of his writing. Actually, the media plays a pretty big role in quite a few stories. Thinking of Dunwich Horror, The Color Out of Space, has it at, it's suggested in the, at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, the Shadow Over Innsmouth has a little bit of it too. Um, and it's something that from one of his letters, you know, Lovecraft was was worried about. It's like if you're going to have these weird fictions, if you're going to have monsters and underground cults and ancient gods and stuff, you know, you got to deal with the fact that this stuff's going to be, be reported. Even in Call of Cthulhu, right? The, the, the climax of the story is, is based on this discovery of a newspaper account, right? So how does the media, the straight media, interpret this stuff? And how do they try to come to sense with it? And this whole story, in a way, is about the media telling a lie about what happened to Robert Blake and then someone else trying to dig up real truth. And I like to imagine that the narrator of this is a, is a journalist who came across Robert Blake's diary and was able to piece together the story. Um, but anyways, um, on this, this journalist's body, there's all these things. And one of these is his notes, right? His, his little flip book or whatever of notes with text and it it has all these um connections to the church all his notes about this like he was writing this he wanted to write a story about this church right and he mentions disappearances in like 1846 he mentions uh like the first entry here professor enoch bowen home from egypt may 1844 buys old free will church in july his archaeological works and studies in cult well known so again we got an outsider or someone bringing in some tradition from the outside. In this case, it's from Egypt, right? And you now we're reminded that the cobwebs seem to form um, Egyptian symbols. Um, an ankh, right, which is an important symbol from from ancient Egypt Egyptian traditions. Uh, he gets he's got notes. He met Father O'Malley. We, he actually interviewed Father O'Malley, who 
Blake can't because he's already been killed. And, quote, he tells of devil worship with box found in great Egyptian ruins. Says they call up something that cannot exist in light. Flees a little light and banished by strong light. Then it has to be summoned again. Probably got this from the deathbed confessions of Francis X. Feeney. Um, now, the same entry that, and again, these are all just the journalist's little notes. He says, he adds, these people say the shining trapehedron shows them heaven and other worlds and that the haunter of the dark tells them secrets in some ways. So these are going to be the key two elements that kind of drive the rest of the story is this shining trapehedron, trapezohedron. I'm not even sure what that shape is supposed to be. Anyways, it's some sort of device that allows you to travel through time and space. And the haunter in the dark is, as the name of the story suggests, like our main, our main villain. But we get more stories here uh, in this the journalist notes. I mean, this would be a great thing if it had been written up, you know. Maybe someone has written up this history into a, a nice story. Um, Irish Boys Mob Church in 1869. Six disappearances in 1867. Secret Committee calls on Mayor Doyle. Action promised 1877. Cl church closes in April. Gang, Federal Hill Boys, threaten doctor and vestrymen in May. 181 pe persons leave city before end of 77. Mentions no names. So he's got all these questions here too, but this is, this, so this journalist, he found out all this stuff and then he went to this church to investigate for himself and, and died, right? So um, he steals actually the, the, his pocketbook, but not this paper, um, it says. This is restoring the paper to the pocket. Oh no, he, yeah, he takes the, he steals the paper, puts it in the pocketbook and steals both. So that's how he, he knows about it in his, in his uh, journals. Um, and after this, he has a vision. Um, he has a vision of a cult, actually. So Blake actually is a creative, sensitive, imaginative type. So I don't know if this is a real vision or just his imagination running wild with him. But he, he actually sees something from the past. Maybe what was ever implied in these notes. Quote, he saw processions of robed hooded figures whose outlines were not human and looked on endless leagues of desert lined with carved sky-reaching monoliths he saw towers and walls in night depths under the sea and vortices of space where wisps of black mist floated before thin shimmerings of cold dark haze um, but eventually fear breaks the vision whatever vision if it's real or just as imagination he, he's broke and he um, ends up uh, fleeing the church um, but he's got these questions about what is the shining trapezohedron um what was this cult? What were these uh, strange activities going on in the church? He's got all these questions, but he's kind of, he's actually kind of scared off by rats. Um, so, uh, and then he leaves the church. So um, then we get to kind of the, you know, the story begins to uh, reach its climax. Um, less than 10 pages left at this point. Again, the story is not much more than 20. So it's really, really densely packed tail. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, now, what Blake focuses on doing at this point is trying to decipher the diary. And he finds out it's in the Aklo language. This kind of the language used of ancient antiquity, uh, ancient cults and things like that. Cults of ancient antiquity, we're told. You know, it's it's kind of, it's, I think in like Dungeons and Dragons, Aklo is like the language of the devils or demons or something. I think that's the same kind of idea here. And he's, but anyways, he's able to decipher it. Um, and 
Blake is able to write down in his diary some of his findings, like references to the haunt in the dark, references to the shining trapezohedron, um, and various other things. And what he finds out about this, and he kind of gets a, we get a little bit of a narrative here. It, it doesn't, it's not like the long descriptions we get in at the Mountains of Madness or the Shadow Out of Time. It's just a brief mention of what's sort of going on here. I don't think it's that important to the story. It's all, this is really about what happens to Blake. But there is a connection here to his broader cosmology, mythology, and the, you know, some of his other stories. So I'll read it because it's, it's fun. Of the shining trapezohedron, he speaks often, calling it a window on all time and space and tracing its history from the days it was fashioned on dark Yugoth, even before the old ones brought it to Earth. It was treasured and placed in the curious box by the cringoid things of Antarctica, salvaged from the ruins by the serpent men of Valusia, and peered at eons later in Lemuria by the first human beings. It crossed strange lands and stranger seas and sank with Atlantis before a Minoan fisher meshed it with his net and sold it to swarthy merchants from knighted Kem. The pharaoh Nephron Khan built around it a temple with a windowless crypt and did that which caused his name to be stricken from all monuments and records. Then it slept in the ruins of that evil... Fane, where the priests and the new pharaoh destroyed till the deviler spade once more brought it forth to curse mankind. So we get the whole history here. Why the Egypt connection? Where the, why this thing ended up in Egypt? This haunter in the dark and this shining trapezohedron. But it's got a much deeper history here connected to the old ones. The, the Migo brought it from Yugoth. It was guarded by the elder things for a time. The serpent men of Elusia, that's from the Yig stories in um, the, the curse of Yeg or the mound those kinds of stories um, were those revisions he did now Nefron Ka is mentioned I th- think he shows up in I'm not sure where he was mentioned before I'm, I don't think it's in under the pyramids that's that's about the uh, the, the Pharaoh that built the pyramids of Giza but anyways. This all freaks him out, right? Um, but it also freaks out the community. There's a change in the immigrant community. I love how like Lovecraft always has the, the working class be the, the canary in the, the coal mine that kind of knows something's up. Quote, early in July, the newspapers oddly supplement Blake's entry, though in so briefly and casual a way that the, only the diary has called general attention to the contribution. It appears that a new fear had been growing on Federal Hill since the stranger had entered the dreaded church. The Italians whispered of unaccustomed stirrings and bumpings and scrapings in the dark windowless steeple, end quote. Um, and then there's kind of this, the local people begin, begin to plan to abolish the evil. So if we go back to the, the dead journalist and his body and his notes, you know, it was the Irish who stood up against this cult, you know, a gener- two generations earlier. And, and now they're gearing up to do it again. So they must have kept some knowledge of this throughout their, throughout their communities. Right? So it's, it's not just racism. I mean, there's a, there's a, a little bit of, like, they're, they're almost like, guard, they're like watching. They're keeping an eye on things. They're, they're protectors. Very different from how the immigrants were described in in the horror at Red Hook. And actually here, I guess, I don't know if they're immigrants. They're descendants of immigrants or whatever. But maybe that, that's a difference without a distinction for Lovecraft. But anyways. 
Um, at some point, the the church gets cleaned up, and when people go back in there, the windows are broken. And I think Blake actually goes back, but he, he reads newspaper accounts. So the media plays a role in all this. It's, it's quite fascinating how the media plays a role in all this. It's keeping tabs on everything. But there, it smells bad, but it's been cleaned up. Like the body's gone. A lot of the weird stuff that was there is cleaned up. Um, um, but the glass is broken. Quote, what disturbed Blake the most, except for the hints of stains and charrings and bad orders, was the final detail that explained the crashing glass. Every one of the tower's lancet windows were broken, and two of them had been darkened in the crude and hurried way by the stuffing of satin pew linings and cushioned horsehair into the spaces between the slanting exterior louver boards. More satin fragments and bunches of horsehair lay scattered around the newly swept floor, as if someone had been interrupted in the act of restoring the tower to an absolute blackness of its tightly curtailed curtain days. So who's doing this? Um, the media doesn't know. The media is, is is baffled by this and actually kind of reports that this must be some big joke that maybe, you know, people are just having fun on the community or making fun of some poor devil who entered the church and they're just trying to freak him out. That's what they seem to think. But Blake thinks there's something much more insidious because, of course, he's read the Deciphered Journal. He knows about the, the, the shining trapezohedron and he knows about the, the haunter in the dark. And he starts to, to freak out a little bit. And he eventually has a breakdown um, on July 30th. Quote, he did not dress and order all his food by telephone. Visitors remarked the cords he kept near his bed. And he said that sleepwalking had forced him to bind his ankles every night with knots, which would probably hold or else waken him with the labors of untying. Um, and he also begins to have visions. And one of the visions he has is of the true cosmic horror of of Azathoth, uh, the, the ultimate chaos god at the center of, of all existence. Um, it's also suggested here he knows something about Azathoth. He's like a, it's like a known tradition. So, anyways, all of this leads us to the, to the climax of the story. It's basically there's this storm, right? Because, of course, he's with lightning, and that's the explanation. The official explanation of his death is that he was um, hit by lightning. But the storm was really bizarre, and the weather was really strange. So the media watched this as well. So we get media reports about this, um, this part of it as well. Um, and it's kind of interesting. We like we get these little rumors that that on first reading you might just disregard, but actually they might explain more than you than you first glanced at, when you, than you thought when you first read it. Uh, like this a little bit. Because the newspaper, you know, maybe it's private this newspaper just, you know, they make a big deal out of this storm. Why not, right? It's, it's weird things have been happening. So, you know, and, you know, this weather is certainly very strange. Um, and there's a great moment here, which reminded me actually of a Stephen King novel, where these old timers who, they like, you know, don't remember anything like this and, and see this weather as unnatural. But anyways, I want to read this section where uh, a fraternity student sees this actual lightning or something. Um, quote, a youth at the tall Omega fraternity house thought he saw a grotesque and hideous mass of smoke in the air just as the preliminary flash burst, but his observation had not been verified. All of the few observers, however, agree as to the violent gust from the west and the flood of intolerable stench which preceded the bleated stroke 
whilst evidence concerning them momentarily burned order after the stroke is equally general. Um, but anyways, that's it. So you have this storm, and then the next day, we have the, the body of Blake found with his twisted features and grotesque uh, facial, yeah, his, his, his expression, his hideous expression uh, that does not seem to be what you would naturally get from someone hit by lightning. Not that I know what that would look like. Um, but more freaky is his notes. He was writing down this entry in his diary very vigorously to try to um, explain what's happening. Uh, to prove his sanity. He's trying to prove his sanity. I'll read this whole passage because it's only like a page long. But there's elements where he's, he's talking about crazy stuff, but he's also trying to prove that he's sane. Um, and he's writing till, till, his, till his, the moment of his death. Here's what he writes. Light's still out. Must be five minutes now. Everything depends on lightning. Yadith grant it will keep up. Some influences seem beaten through it. Rain and thunder and wind deafen. The thing is taking hold of my mind. Trouble with memory. I see things I have never known before. Other worlds and other galaxies. Dark. The lightning seems dark and the darkness seems light. It cannot be the real hill and church that I see in the pitch darkness. It must be a retinal impressions left by flashes. Heaven grant the Italians are out with their candles if this lightning stops. Um, I'll move on and say the rest of this, but what he seems to be, what seems to be going on here is the lightning is actually preventing or stopping the haunter and dark from from moving. It's, it's why it, it has to move when the lightning is not 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 there. What am I afraid of? Is it not an avatar of Naralapatep who in an and shadowy Kim even took the form of man? I remember Yugoth and more distant Shagai, the ultimate void of the black planets. The long winding flight through the void cannot cross the universe of light, recreated by the thoughts caused by the shining trapezohedron, send in through the horrid, horrid abysses of radiance. My name is Blake, Robert Harrison Blake of 620 East Snap Street, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am on this planet. Azatoth, have mercy. The lightning knows no longer flashes. Horrible. I can see everything with the monstrous scene that is not sight. Light is dark and dark is light. Those people on the hill guard candles and charms. They're priests. Sense of distance gone. Far is near and near is far. No light, no glass. See that steeple, that tower window. Can hear Roderick Usher. Am mad or going mad? The thing is stirring and fumbling in the tower. I am it and it is I. I want to get out. Must get out and unify the forces. It knows where I am. I am Robert Blake, but I see the tower in the dark. There is a monstrous odor, senses transfigured, boarding at the tower window, cracking and giving way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it coming. Hellwind, Titan Blur, Black Wings, Yogsothoth saved me, the three lobed burning eye. Um, a lot of great elements in that, that story, but it shows him trying to like prove his sanity while also saying these crazy things. Um, but, you know... The, he's killed by the haunter in the dark, right? For, for digging too deeply into this, for having knowledge of the shining trapezohedron, it seems. Um, awake is, it's kind of like the mound in that way where, you know, you do something and then, you know, the creature comes back for you. But this is a much richer story than the hound, I think. I really like it. Um, I very much enjoy the, the interconnections between like the media and the popular knowledge. I think that's the heart of this story for me. But also the character of Blake is really fairly, it's fairly well developed. And you can tell it's drawn from Lovecraft's 
friends and you know people like Clark and Smith and his new friend Robert Block and it's you know you, we know how important his friendships were to him and I think that's a touching aspect of the story um, he, he manages to connect this to cosmic horror he makes it a cosmic horror story as well even though he doesn't like go crazy with it and it's it's a nice contained horror story exploring a lot of his loves like um, the idea of the witch cults and the architecture and uh, dark abandoned buildings and ancient cults and you know this this cosmic indifference of the universe all these themes get hit you know if you know, I'm pretty sure Lovecraft didn't think he was going to die. He thought he, you know, he probably thought he had plenty of years left to write more stories. Um, but you know, for a final story, this one does kind of work. I mean, it does touch so many of the bases that if you if you want to imagine that he knew he only had one story left in him, that he might write something like this. I think um, even in how it kind of goes back to some of his earlier shorter sharper more effect driven sto stories it does that too while also kind of building off of some of his more cosmic mythology he's been he's built up in the since the late 20s you know it, it works on it does work as a coda to his career i think although i don't i don't believe he, he knew he was going to die um, who really thinks that i mean i guess if you really if doctor says you got two months to live then you know you're going to die but most of us Think we're going to hang out for a while at least long enough to finish the next project um i guess that's it um i i love this story the haunter in the dark it's a great one it's one that really grows on me and i, I think especially the way providence is described in the story it's 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 actually a lot of elements in the short tale are explored, like the media and the immigrant communities and the, its history, even though it's a fictionalized history, it's, it's, it's played out here too. Um, so um, I guess that's it. So we're going to put an end to this kind of part of the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. I'm not going to, unless there's something I missed, I think, heaven forbid, there's a story I missed. Um, it, might, it might be possible. Um, I don't think I did, but if there's a story that he published or wrote under his name that I missed, let me know and I'll come back and clean up and finish it. But I think I'm done with those stories. Um, I still have a bunch of revisions to look at. So the that's what we'll pick up in the next episode with the revisions. And when we're done with that, we'll, we'll jump over to, uh, to the Robert E. Howard stories. And that'll be the true end of this, this series. Um, the next story we're going to look at though is Hazel held and HP Lovecraft's the man of stone. This was, uh, a revision written in 1932. So I think there's probably like 20 good episodes of stories about revisions coming up. So plenty of episodes in this podcast, but um, if you're only here for the the HP Lovecraft official stories, this, this is the end of the line. Um, but hope you'll join me as I explore his revisions and hopefully find interesting things to say about them. So that's going to be it for now. Uh, as always, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter. Or you just leave a comment on, on iTunes or on, um, on directly on this podcast website. So uh, that's it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you. 
day after day Turning away As much as to say You've never known me Stranger After sharing all your 